Good afternoon. If you want to open your Bibles up to the book of Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians, we're going to be reading from there in just a short moment. While you're doing that, uh, just like to call our minds back to the commands of the Word of God. I think when we think of it, sometimes you have people that go to this, this very odd extreme that God's book is not full of any commands. The, the Word of God doesn't give us any commands. It maybe gives us some, some ideas, some guidelines, but not commands. That's Old Testament. New Testament doesn't have that. And that, that notion is, is wrong in many ways. There are many commands that we think of for people who are going to be following Christ. They, we, we see that Christ instructed His, His disciples to do certain things. We know that they were, as we talked about this morning, they needed to be people that prayed. They needed to be people of prayer. Uh, the, the disciples are commanded to not only pray, but also to be people who are thankful, given to thanksgiving, given to thinking about their situations and finding something to be thankful for in that situation. They were told to abhor what is evil, to, to see those things that are, that are evil and wicked and wrong and run and flee from those things. There are many commands that we see in the New Testament. But there's one that I don't think we oftentimes think of as a command, and that's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, we have a command given that's just as binding upon Christians as any of the other commands that we've just, just mentioned, and that is rejoice always. Rejoice always. It has been observed uh, by, by many over the years that Christians sometimes fall short of carrying out this command in their life. To be people of joy to be people of, of happiness, people that are affected by uh, news of glad tidings. And it's apparent in the lives that they live, in the way that they interact with the world. Sometimes that carries over into their worship, and it's apparent in their, in their singing, in, in their praying, even in their, their ability to sit and listen to God's Word preached, almost like this is a chore for them. And my thought was, Why? Why is it that we sometimes see that? Why do we see people having a hard time being overjoyed like God commands us to be? And I believe there are many, many reasons, and I just want to hit on a few this afternoon. But before we do that, let's just think for a minute, what is it He's calling us to? When, they, when we write, or read in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always. The word in the Greek that's used there is the word chara, C-H-A-R-A, chara. And it's the root word. First of all, that word means joy. That shouldn't be any big surprise. Chara means joy. It also means delight, and it means gladness. So when we read that word, we should also know that that's the root word for some other things that are pretty important to us, like the word charis, or charis, as it's probably more accurately pronounced, which means grace. Part of the root of grace is joy. Or another word that we're definitely familiar with, and that is the word charisma. Charisma, that's where we get our word charisma. And you know someone who has charisma in, in maybe the job that they do. They do their job with great charisma, great vigor. They are, they are joyful. The word charisma means gift. When you read the word charisma in, in the Greek, that is the word that is translated gift. And so maybe that helps us understand why we came up with the word charisma today and why you, this person works in their job with so much charisma it's because they recognize the reward that comes with it, whether that reward be a, you know, a pay. Some people work just for that paycheck at the end of the week. Some people work because of a pure love of the job. 
to see the project that I'm working on be fulfilled and committed brings me great joy. And so I work with that joy in my heart. When we see that there's a connection between these three words, joy, grace, and gift, Maybe it can help us to reformulate our own ideas on joy. One guy was quoted as saying, we might like to think of charis or charisma as that which produces joy and chara as the response to a gift which is given. And this is uh, in keeping with other places. The Zondervan Topical Bible Commentary says the emotion, when it has the definition for joy, this is the emotion excited by expectation or acquisition of good. What is joy? That is that emotion that is activated, is turned on, is is excited by the thought of receiving something good, something profitable. And so understanding that there's a relationship then between the idea of gift and joy, it can help us to build this picture of what we need to have always. And part of that is understanding that joy is often directly related in response to the value of the gift. Let me tell you right now, not so much today, but at a time in my past, when I opened up a present full of socks and underwear, you did not see great charisma. I didn't open up that present going, I can't wait to get into these things. Now that may have changed now that my feet are just humongous. But at the time, I was like, I don't want gifts of socks. That's not what I'm looking for. But now, when mom and dad got me uh, a video game system, or or I remember one year I got a BB gun. Now you talk about somebody excited to open a gift. I was ready for those things. We can see that if someone today comes to you and hands you a, a handful of pennies, usually your idea is going to be, at least my idea is, what am I supposed to do with these? I mean, Really, at this point in our society, pennies are kind of a nuisance. They fill up your pocket. They fill up every nook and cranny of your car. They make their way underneath your couch cushions and and in drawers. And they almost seem to be more trouble than they're actually worth, you know, one cent. But if someone comes and gives you $100, wow, now that's a nice gift. What did I do to deserve this? I want you to think even further. There was a TV show used to come on all the time uh, called uh, Extreme Home Makeover. And right now, I'm going to tell you, Holly knows this to be true, I am the most skeptical person when it comes to reality-based TV shows. I don't believe them. I don't believe responses. I don't believe... I say, oh, that was scripted. That didn't really happen. Case in point, and if anyone's a fan of the show, I apologize, my dad is the biggest fan of the Oak Island TV show. And I look at that show and I think every single item found on there is fake, it's staged. I don't believe they're ever going to find anything on that island. Now, if you do, I'm not picking on you. But I want you to know, I'm very skeptical of these things. But when I see the reaction of someone seeing their new home for the first time, I usually see that and go, wow, that's pretty cool. Those people, they don't seem to be just putting on a show. They really genuinely, if someone showed me, if someone took my house, which was in in great disrepair and I had no ability to fix it, and they came and they completely remodeled it, and what I'm left with is this this mansion of a house, and I'm going to be excited about that. That's going to change the way I act that day in a big way. We can see the response to the gift is based entirely on our value of the gift. 
So how does that principle apply to the joy that Christians are commanded always to have? Let's think for a moment about what God has given us. It's probably easier to list all the things that He hasn't given us in light of passages like James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So what has God given us? Every good and every perfect gift. So that list of what He hasn't given us is probably going to be a lot shorter than the list of what He has given us. But the one that I really want to focus our mind on is, of course, what we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. He has given us the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That gift involves freedom from the condemnation of sin, which comes through the blood of Christ. That gift involves fellowship, a a relationship that is not one way, but two ways. Not with one another. I mean, that's true. We have that. But even deeper than that, with God, with the Creator of the universe, He has given us a gift to say, you can come into fellowship with Me. And in fact, not only can you come into fellowship with Me, but one day the hope of eternal life with Him, everlasting life in heaven with the Father. Should we not look at that and say, what a great gift. What a magnificent gift. In Acts chapter 8, you see this in the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And towards the end of that chapter, verses 38 and 39, it says they commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized, or he immersed him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. I almost picture this scene kind of like what we see in that show. Driver, move that bus. And the, just the, the emotion, the, the, the relation that, that is happening in this, in this Ethiopian eunuch's eyes and mind as he realizes, what a gift I've just received. I've just received freedom. I've just received a gift given by this one that he read about. The one that was led as a sheep to the slaughter. A lamb before his shears, silent. He opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And he's reading Isaiah and he's putting it all together and he's realizing, this has been given to me. What a great gift. But as I mentioned at the beginning, it does seem that there are many Christians that you probably have come into contact with yourself, that this great gift doesn't seem to bring as much joy as we might think it should. And again, we say, well, why? We understand that joy is based proportionately off the value of the gift. So why don't they have great joy in their lives? Well, there's a couple reasons that I want to think of. One is maybe they don't recognize the magnitude of our sins. They don't recognize the magnitude of what sin has done to our lives. In Isaiah, what he was reading from, turn back over to Isaiah 59. As this this eunuch is reading through the book of Isaiah, surely he would have have read and, and studied this verse in some manner. Isaiah 59 and verses 1 and 2. It says, Behold... The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But 
Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. Isaiah is speaking to the people of God, the Hebrews, and he's saying the God that you serve, it's not that it's without his, with, uh, outside of His power to save you. It's not that His ears are, are clogged and He can't hear your prayers. It's your sin. Your sin has taken you and moved you so far from Him that He's not hearing your prayers anymore. He's not in your presence anymore. Your sin has separated you from Him. The passage that we just quoted a minute ago, Romans 6.23, that the free gift of God is found in Christ Jesus. It's eternal life in Christ Jesus. But the beginning of that verse tells us that sin, the wages of it, what it earns us, is death. And that's painting a picture looking back all the way to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, when sin entered into the world and God promised. He said, if you eat of the tree in the middle of the garden that I have commanded you not to eat from, you will surely die. Death will come into the world and Adam and Eve probably at that time thought, I don't want to die. I just got here. I can't be that old, I imagine, at this point. I don't want to physically die. And Satan plays on that saying, you won't die. You won't die. You'll be just like God, and he doesn't want that to happen. But when they eat of the fruit, immediately they recognize something has changed. They become like God in the sense that they know the difference between right and wrong. They recognize that they are naked. They are filled with shame. God comes and He has to create clothes for them out of an animal which must be killed so that they can have those clothes. They are taken and sent out of the garden so they're not in that relationship with God anymore. Spiritual death occurs with sin. And it leads us down a path to hell. So why might we have a hard time seeing the magnitude of that fact? I mean, that seems to be pretty clear. Why why do we struggle with that? Maybe it's because the whole world struggles with that. When you talk about sin to the world, to the people of the world, sometimes you kind of get the feeling that they think, well, sin's not really all that bad. Or maybe there's gradients of sin, like, you know, yeah, murder's probably a pretty big no-no, but telling a lie... Is that really that big a deal? What if, what if the circumstance calls for me to lie and it's that, that protects more people and all of these philosophical questions that rise up with it? Is it really all that wrong? Or isn't it just something that violates you know, relationships with other people? You know, when I, when I hurt someone, that hurts them. And can't I just correct that by going and saying, hey, I'm sorry for hurting you? Like, isn't sin really just something that's between me and somebody else and I can solve that just by going and apologizing? So many times we get these these confused views of sin in the world that are so prevalent that it's not uncommon for them to leach into our own eyes and cause us to forget the truth about sin and the severity of sin instead of looking at it from God's point of view. You know, back over in James, James chapter 2 It's almost as if James is kind of thinking ahead, or maybe this was a problem at that day, with this idea of, of, you know, well, this sin's not as bad as that sin. Look what he says in chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. He says, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. 
For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And the point that he's making is it doesn't matter which part of the law you violated. It was a violation of the law. Whether it be a big violation or a little violation, it's still a violation. And the violation of the law, not the certain sin, but the breaking of the law of God is what brought people in to iniquity. And Romans chapter 3 tells us it's not just something that, that one person might do to another person. Romans chapter 3 tells us it's something that we have all been guilty of. Romans 3 verse 23, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That tells us right away that the sin is in relationship not just to one another, to God and to, to His glory. Sin is so terrible that verses like John 3.16 tells us God had to send His Son so that we might be saved from our sins. He had to die for our sins. We need to realize on a very fundamental in our core that sin, sin is not just a mistake. Sin is not just something that... It's not a little whoopsie. Sin is a terrible, terrible ordeal. And until we know that, we'll never truly appreciate our salvation that God offers from sin. And so that leads to maybe another reason why some Christians lack joy today. And it's not that they maybe don't appreciate the magnitude of our sin. Maybe they don't appreciate the magnitude of our gift. They don't understand fully what Jesus has done. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verses 18 through 19, he speaks about how we have been reconciled. <clears throat> saying, all, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Do we understand the gift that we have been given of being reconciled, of being made different in the eyes of God? When two people are reconciled to one another, you hear that word used a lot today, oftentimes in a marriage. A marriage that is on the rocks. A marriage that is in trouble of being split up. And yet something happens that causes these people to come back together, to begin talking to one another, to work out their problems, and to say they reconciled their differences. They made changes, and, and, and they, they came into a relationship again. He says God has been working through Jesus Christ to reconcile the world. That's talking about bringing them back into a relationship. That's the opposite of what we read in Isaiah, where our sins had driven us far from God. God has been working to bring us back. And notice what he said in the verse right before that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The gift of God, the gift of what Jesus has done, is that He's making us new. We had, because of our sins, traveled far from God, entered into a relationship with the world that is not compatible with the Lord. And we could not be in fellowship with Him. But because of His love and His mercy and His grace, He sent His Son 
so that we could be reconciled, so we could be brought back, so we could be made new again in the blood of Christ. And again, we ask, well, why is it hard for people to see this? Why might Christians sometimes miss the magnitude of this? Here's some hints. In John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may, may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus is telling us, the things that I have spoken have a purpose. And the purpose is that you may be joyful. And you know who heard that and recorded it? John. And you know what John writes in his epistle in 1 John 1, 4? These things we write to you that your joy may be full. He didn't pull that out of his hat. He's speaking the words of Christ. He's relating the message again. John wrote, Jesus spoke concerning the things designed to give us fullness of joy. Many Christians, most likely, I don't want to speak with a broad brush, but maybe we just miss the opportunity. We don't take the time to contemplate and understand the things that Jesus taught, the things that His apostles wrote. To stop and think about it and say, how is that supposed to give me joy? Because it is. That's what He's telling us. The things that I wrote, the things that I said, are for your enjoyment. If we did, I think things like the terribleness of sin and the magnitude of salvation, those things would be heightened in our eyes. But all too often we allow ourselves to be influenced by the world and its standards. So what are the things that we receive joy from? Well, it's usually those material things. You know, the BB gun and the video game and the new house and jobs and promotions and worldly friendships, even families, husband and wife and children, these things bring us great joy. And don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't. I'm not suggesting that these things should not bring us joy. All the more, when we read James chapter 1, verse 17, I think we understand that they should bring us joy. We need to be thankful over them, but not as joyful as our spiritual gifts bring us. We need to be retrained in our thinking through the Word of God and being mindful of the things of God. Now, there may be one more reason that I want to look at quickly. And this is one that I know that I've struggled with in my past. And it's because of a teaching that I've heard my whole life. A teaching that's not entirely false. In fact, it's more true than false. But sometimes it's a response that goes too far. And that is we've overreacted sometimes to emotionalism. There is a danger in moving and, and acting strictly off emotions. When emotions rule our hearts and our minds more than the Word of God, that's a problem. And so oftentimes that's what we find people today doing. Why do you go to the place where you go of worship? Because that's where I feel good. Whenever we worship there, I get this feeling like everything is how God wants it. Everything makes me just know that there's a spiritual experience happening. And for most of my life, I've heard sermon after sermon preached against this and the importance of not following our heart because the heart is the source of, of many vile things. We need to know that. I'm not arguing against that. We need to know the dangers that making a decision off of what feels right 
can bring to our lives. But there's a danger in the other extreme as well. And if we call one emotionalism, I would call the other one formalism, where we see the form. You know, we pray, we've prayed already today about everything we do being done in spirit and truth. We see a form of how things should be done, but if we do them with form and no heart, no emotion, we're just as guilty as those who have been compelled to go only off of their heart. Sometimes we see that, again, in our singing. Sometimes you'll see singing that that you get the, the feeling, I wonder if we really want to be here to sing these praises of God. One of the songs that we sang just, just a minute ago, what a beautiful, I should have memorized it before I, before I even got up here. Um, in 612, there is a line, now watch it not be that one and I'm going to look really silly. Um, there is a line in that one as we sing about love lifted me. Number two, verse two. All my heart to Him I give, ever to Him I cling. In His blessed presence live, Ever His praises sing, love so mighty and so true, merits. That word merit, that word means deserves. That's similar to the word that we saw in Romans 6, 6.23, the wages of sin. What you have earned by your sin is death. What God has earned by His mighty love that is so true is my soul's best song. Now, that verse of that song, is not saying that God deserves pitch-perfect music. That song is not saying that God deserves proper tempo. God deserves proper key. That song is saying my soul's best song. Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 15, and He saw that there was a problem with formalism in the days of his life. In chapter 15, starting in verse 7, he said, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. His disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. And Jesus said, "Are Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. Now, when we read on, he talks about things like murder and adultery and thefts and lies. And we oftentimes read that verse and think about the negative things that we do. But read this verse in relationship to our our emotion and worship. What does our heart say about our singing? What does our heart say about our prayers? You know, at the end of a prayer, we say amen. Do we know what that word even means? Are are we aware of what we're saying? Saying something without understanding the meaning is something that we fuss at our children all the time. Why'd you say that? I don't know. You've got to know why. You've got to know what you're saying. You've got to know what the word means. Why do we say amen? 
It means let it be. Sometimes people think it means I agree. That's not necessarily the meaning. It means let it be. Whenever someone says a prayer asking that the, 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 the offering of the Lord's Supper be blessed and we offer thanksgiving for Jesus' blood and we look forward to the coming of the Christ. When we say amen at the end of that, we're saying let it be. Let Christ come quickly. Let His body resemble or let this bread resemble His body broken on the cross. Let this blood resemble His sacrifice in the new covenant where we found salvation for our sins. And let the Lord return and not make haste. Same thing in, during a sermon. Whenever you hear someone say amen. Actually, there's a story that I read, and I have no idea if this story is true or if it's just a story that was, that was made up to teach and illustrate a point. But uh, it, it was humorous to me says that a man walked into a worship assembly. It was already taking place. He strolls in and sits down, and during the sermon, the preacher is talking about the love of God, so much so that we, we can have a, a salvation of our sins. And the man hears this, and he says, Amen! And promptly, people turn around, as oftentimes happens, and looks at that guy. Some of them whisper, Who's that? Who's that guy who said Amen in the back of the church building? The preacher continues to go on and states that Jesus' death on the cross was so that we might have forgiveness of our sins. And the man, again, hallelujah! Praise God. And again, people kind of turn around and look and stare. What's this guy? Who is this guy? And as the preacher closes his sermon, he begins to state that Jesus, and through Jesus alone, we have a hope of eternal life. To which the man responds, praise the Lord. And everyone now is looking, and as one fellow stands up and strolls over to him, he leans in his ear and he says, we don't do that here. Now what he meant by that is we don't say those things here. What it comes off is we don't praise the Lord here. I'll leave it to you to take the meaning from that, 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 that little ditty, that little story. But it does highlight in our lives, we can be joyful and orderly in worship. We can do things in spirit and in truth. We can do things in the manner in which we have been proclaimed and with sincerity and still let our hearts shine to the Lord. You know, passages such as Joel chapter 2 come to mind. In verse 23, it says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. Are we children of Zion? I would submit that if we have been saved by the blood of Christ, entered into a relationship and this new covenant with Him, made, made descendants of Abraham, then yes, we are children of Zion. And we should be glad and rejoice. The psalmist writes in Psalm 122.1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. We're here today. I loved Alan's prayer where two or three are gathered in my name, there you are in our midst. Welcome. Welcome to our assembly, God. I thought that was an awesome prayer that he led. We are in the house of the Lord. We come together, not into a brick building, but into a relationship with one another to worship God. And God is in our midst. Does that bring us joy? Are you glad to be here? Paul wrote in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Such an important phrase, he couldn't say it just once. He had to tell us twice. Rejoice, Christians. In Ephesians 5, verse 19, the one of two verses that we go to 
over and over again to say we will not worship with instrumental music because that's not what God wants. Sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. We're going to cut those worship instruments out. But will we also cut out the heart? Is there heart in our singing to one another? I've focused on Christians that don't have joy. I'm not saying that the Christians here don't have joy. But we could. That's something that each one of us needs to evaluate within our own hearts. Am I giving God joy in my singing, in my prayer, in my studying of His Word? Am I expressing that joy to my brother and sister? We should enter into the worship of our Creator and Savior with the enthusiasm and the vigor that that is due. Not with the enthusiasm and vigor that we enter into our taxes on April, on April 14th. I'm telling you, I despise tax season. I mean, at my very core, I despise tax season. And there have been times when I can't tell a difference between me sitting in front of TurboTax with my hand on my cheek going, this is so dumb. There have been times in my life where I've looked at my worship and thought, I'm not giving much more to God than I'm giving to the IRS. And that ought not be. I've needed to do better. Maybe you've thought to yourself that you need to do better too. Let's pray the prayer of David. In Psalm 51, verse 12, he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Maybe that would be a good thing for us to pray before we come to worship. To remind ourselves what God has done for us. Let's allow the Word of God to do its work. And Jeremiah 15, verse 16 says, Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was with me, it was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Are you here today called by his name? If you, if you are, give heed to what had to happen for that to be the case for you. Think about the magnitude of your sin, think about the value of the gift given to redeem you and reconcile you out of that sin and out of its consequences into a wonderful relationship with God, a new name in Christ Jesus. And allow that wonderful knowledge to restore the joy that you have. One more verse, Psalm 89 verses 15 through 16 says, Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day long. And in your righteousness, they are exalted. Let's be people this morning who are people of prayer. And let's remember this afternoon that we're going to be people of joy. Prayer and joy. Do you want that? Do you want the joy that we should have? The joy that only comes through following Christ, being led by His Word, being strengthened by His love? We want for you to have that as well. And if that would be your desire, please let it be known right now. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.